Good morning, and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumser, and today we're going to talk with Don Saul from Culture X. Don's, Don's got this amazing resume that you wish you had. He's a senior lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management, um, serves on the committee that oversees business analytics program there, um, and runs XLab, which is something that does randomized controlled trials in organizations. He's also been named a rising star in the new generation of management gurus by The Economist and Fortune um, also loves him. He's got five books under his belt. This is one of those guys you need to watch closely. Don, how are you? Great. Well, uh, very well, John. Thank you for the kind introduction. Yeah. Um, so, so how did you end up doing what you do? That, that this is this is a puzzle, right? Because no kid wakes up wanting to do detailed analytics about organizational behavior. So, so how did you end up doing this? Yeah, that, or it would be an odd child that did wake up to uh, think that. So, well, uh, you know, I started my career in um, uh, at McKinsey, and then I was uh, in private equity, and you know, uh, kind of an executive had P and L responsibility. So, you know, before I retired into academia, I was actually, uh, you know, on the hook for hitting my numbers, uh, an operating manager, and. Um, uh, and so carried into my academic career a real interest in not just, you know, kind of theoretically interesting questions, but practically interesting questions, like what actually drives results in organizations. And, um, you, you know, over time, it just became clearer and clearer. It, uh, you know, of course, I had observed this when I was working, too, but, you know, culture is a critical element, hard to measure, though it is, hard to define, though it is, the critical element of what, over time, drives performance of organizations. So uh, that's really been um, you know, it's messy, it's tough, but uh, it's super important. And folks, by and large, had avoided it because it was messy and it was tough. So that's uh, that's what really got me interested in the question and, and trying to do uh, measure culture rigorously and, and link it to outcomes rigorously. So, so talk to me a little bit about what you think culture is. Well, so the the kind of standard uh, definition of culture in uh, well, first of all, I should say there are a lot of different points of view on what culture are, and all of which, uh, or many of which, uh, provide insight. But the, the most commonly used uh, definition of culture is a set of uh, value, a bundle of values and norms that shape behavior, uh, that are widely shared throughout an organization, deeply held, and where there is some uh, uh, there are some sanction if you violate those norms and expectations. And that's uh, you know that comes from uh, Charles O'Reilly at Stanford. Uh, and uh, uh, Jennifer Chapman at Berkeley, but it's, it's been very widely adopted in the um, academic research. And, and parenthetically, that's how companies talk about their culture as well as in terms of values and norms. We have a study of over 600 large companies and how they uh, publicly describe their culture, and almost all of them, I mean, well north of 90%, describe their culture in terms of the values and the norms that they aspire to. So both practically and uh, you know, kind of theoretically and empirically, that's how people talk about culture. And so not to say there aren't other views of culture uh, that, uh, that uh, shed insight, but this, I think, is a really um, you know, kind of the dominant view. And then, of course, allows uh, for measurement. And then once you can measure the uh, culture, it allows you then to understand which elements of culture are most predictive of outcomes and you know, total shareholder returns or innovation or uh, uh, revenue growth, whatever it is. That, that, what what an interesting thing. So so so, 
am I getting this right? That 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 what you're saying is that culture is those aspirational goals that are on every poster in every break room. Um, here, are the, here are the seven things we hold dear in our company. Is, is that what culture is? No, it's it's the set of uh, so it's the bundle of values and norms of uh, you know expectations of behavior uh, that are widely shared, deeply held, shape behavior over time, and where there are sanctions if uh, uh, if they're violated. They the the official values. To be super clear, this is another paper that we have. We've actually measured companies' stated values versus their official uh, their actually uh, lived values as assessed by employees. And what we find is precisely zero correlation. So the the official values <laughs> that companies aspire to. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. But uh, you know the official values are what companies aspire to. But what we see is that they um, you know very few companies walk the talk. There are some. You know Netflix does. ABM Bev does. There are some companies that do a good job of uh, living up to their uh, you know, aspirational values, but most companies, it's uh, it's just wallpaper. So, so what does what does work look like for somebody who does what you do? Uh, well, it, the typical day starts early and ends late. I'll say that. So, you know, I have three big um, chunks of activity. So, first and foremost, I'm a teacher. Uh, and, you know, have the great privilege of teaching some of the best students in the world at MIT. So that's fantastic. Yeah. As I, you know, I don't I never tell my dean this, but, uh, you know, I'd be happy to pay them as opposed to them paying me for the privilege of working with these uh, students. I mean, so that's just great fun. Um, and then at MIT, I also uh, do a lot of uh, research related activities. So I'm uh, oversee two big research uh, projects. Um, one is on this Culture 500 project, uh, a partnership with Glassdoor. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. Another one is around strategic agility, um, and uh, yeah, you know, and then have a you know a dozen or so uh, research projects related to culture, measuring culture, measuring the impact of culture. Um, so there's the research component, and then the third thing is I've um, I've uh, I'm the co-founder of this startup CultureX, which is a spin-off of my my research at MIT my team's research at MIT where we um, use natural language processing and artificial intelligence to uh, measure attributes of culture in organizations based on what employees say, not on the official values, uh, and then use that to help organizations identify opportunities for improvement, um, you know, intervene, and then actually measure the business results uh, of those interventions. So, so – when you say you use AI and NLP to measure this stuff, are you looking at internal communications to do that? Well, we so it's it, it's textual data is our primary focus, right? So our, our starting place is people are smart enough to describe what's going on in their organization, and you know people who are skeptical about this, they I think they need to in part question, you know, their assumptions about human beings, right? That uh, if they they just don't think people can uh, describe what they do, we believe people can. So, uh, so we we limit ourselves. We do not work with say we do not work with any source of textual data that people did not write with the intent that management read it to improve the company, right? So we don't do emails. We don't do Slack by design. It's a you know kind of an ethical decision for us. What we do use is. Uh, things like Glassdoor reviews where employees are saying, this is what I think about my company meant for public consumption, uh, free text on uh, employee engagement surveys where, again, they've been asked, what are your recommendations to management, uh, employee exit interviews, uh, employee suggestion boxes. And, you know, the typical company that we work with, I mean, we just had a meeting yesterday with a, uh, one of our large clients um, uh, in a single uh, uh, employee engagement review. They generated over 200,000 uh, 
free text instances, you know, and, and that was just from a single survey. So there's a, there's a companies have a, a gold mine of this data, and the problem is at present they typically, either there's some poor schmo who's in a room <laughs> trying to read through these things and see what's going on, which is just impossible for a human being to do at that scale, or they do word clouds or, you know, basically this gold mine of data about employees yeah. in their own words talking about what matters most to them and sharing their insights goes unexploited and that's you know that's what our um, our nlp platform is designed to uh, uh to help companies to do that, that's that's interesting so you assume that there's no bias in the data and that it accurately reflects the organization that 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 what you get with engagement surveys is the truth, and what you get with Glassdoor reviews is the truth. That's, well, that's, why, an, would that's I, an interesting. Well, why would I assume otherwise? I mean, just just I, I assume well, well, well engagement people... surveys are under a are under a lot of pressure because because they're they're often perceived as tools to force people to come up with specific kinds of answers, uh, and, and so well, they're. No, no, but this the, is this is that's true, but that's exactly why. We hate traditional Likert five-point scale surveys, which I have a lot of experience with, by the way, and I've come to hate them not because I started hating them. It's just as I learn more about them, I realize their limitations. You know, the problem with the traditional employee engagement survey is you tell employees what matters. You give them the questions, and then you force them to answer on a one- to five-point scale. And we've known for a long time that if people are in a, see a long list of Likert scale questions, if they're in a bad mood, they give a bunch of stuff ones and twos. If they're in a good mood, they give a bunch of stuff fours and fives somewhere between 25 and 40% of the apparent insight that is, emerges from these employee engagement surveys is an artifact of what's called the non-differentiation bias, that people just say everything's bad or everything's good. That's why free text is so cool, right? So we ignore that data, and I completely agree with the biases in those, that data. What we do is we focus on when people are given a, a blank sheet of paper, right, they write what's on their mind in their own words, based on their experience and their assessment. So we're not telling them what matters. They're telling us what matters. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so that, that, that allows us to get a sense of incidence. So if you look at, you know, 100,000 employees, you get a sense of how many people are talking about, for instance, uh, bureaucracy uh, or the ability to have candid discussions. And then you also see how many of them are talking about it positively or negatively. Uh, and so, and again, our, our fundamental belief is people are smart and they're, and they're uh, honest. And when presented with an opportunity, and, and they, they work in good faith by and large. I mean, there are, of course, exceptions. Uh, and when you look in aggregate over, you know, so any 10 reviews or 15 reviews, that's, that's too small a sample to do anything with. You look at 100,000 reviews. You're going to learn some interesting things about your companies when you when you listen to your employees and take what they have to say seriously. So, could, so could I say from that 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 um, your work is limited to the kinds and scale of company that can produce a hundred thousand results, or or does this does this it's, it's, technique work in smaller shops? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. Uh, it, it you don't need a hundred thousand reviews, but you need. Uh, a couple hundred reviews at least, right? So it, what it's what it's not it, this methodology, and no matter what anybody tells you, it's <laughs> it, they, any nobody can do good NLP with a sample below a couple hundred, at, at least of the kinds of topics that we're looking at. It's it's the sample is just too small. You're too 
um, the, the results are too uh, fragile and susceptible to uh, small sample biases. So, um, uh, but at, at, you know, once you get up to a couple of, I mean, there are a couple of ways to address it. One is instead of asking a general question, what's working in the company, what's not working, what advice would you have to management, you can ask a more specific question like um, how are we doing on innovation, what's working on innovation, what's not working on innovation, and then at a smaller sample uh, because uh, then you'll get, you know, 100% or nearly 100% of your respondents will be talking about a specific topic, uh, and then the sample for that topic will be large enough that you can do analysis with smaller uh, samples. I mean, it's, you still probably need north of 100 to do it even then. Uh, but, yeah, by and large, you need a couple of hundred. Uh, call it 200 is kind of our rule of thumb uh, uh, um, respondents to, uh, uh, you know, to have robust, uh, robust analysis. So, so our call was prompted by a project that you did called Culture 500, and it is a um, assessment of a million glass door reviews. And um, the the theory with this is that that you can find out um, something about corporate culture by searching through this database that you've proved. Tell me about the project and tell me what it's supposed to do. Yeah. So uh, the origin of the project is a, a few years back. I was um, I was working with the uh, uh, the top leadership of the Gates Foundation Global Health Organization. I was spending two days with the team, and before I did that, you know, I knew something about their projects and some other things, but I wanted to get my arms around their culture. And so what I did was I looked at Glassdoor data, and I got about 50 reviews. You know, very small uh, amount of data. And I was super skeptical at the time. I thought, ah, oh, this isn't a lot of reviews, and I'm not sure about the quality of this data. Uh, but anyway, I just by hand. Yeah, you know, kind of working in Excel, classified what people were talking about, classified very crudely what they were talking about, the incidents with which they talked about topics, and whether it was positive or negative. And I pulled together a little chart. And to be honest, going into the meeting uh, with this, because, you know, these are serious people, you know, the top team of the Gates Foundation, uh, you know, I was skept- I was worried about even presenting this because I thought, ah, you know, I'm a- I don't know about this data. But anyway, the, the, top- the conversation turned to culture, and I put it up. And right away, my worst nightmare uh, starts to occur, where one of the uh, one of the senior leaders starts challenging the data and says, "Oh, you know this, blah 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 blah," and I'm like, "Oh boy, that was a mistake putting that chart up." At which point, one of uh, one of his colleagues intervened, and what she said was, "Look, we've just spent you know a large sum of money having a cultural assessment done. Three of the four items that's that are highlighted on those that chart are exactly what this expensive study highlighted, and I'm now very worried about the fourth. At which point I said, wow, this, this is kind of interesting. Uh, but, y- you know, you can't, 45 isn't enough, and, you know, you can't do it by hand. So how could we do this at, this kind of analysis at scale? And that's when I started the project and the partnership with Glassdoor. Um, and, you know, some of the concerns that people have about this is, one, employees won't be honest. Uh, really? Why? I, I mean, would you be honest when you wrote a review? Ask about yourself as opposed to some, you know, some objectified other. Uh, two, that this uh, the the reviews will be dominated either by haters or fanboys. Uh, that there'll be polarized reviews. Empirically, that's not true. That's true of many review sites, by the way. That's true, for instance, of Yelp or Amazon reviews. They tend to be uh, ones and fives dominate the reviews. That's not true of Glassdoor. Uh, Glassdoor's distribution of reviews looks much more like a normal distribution. In fact, it's uh, one of the least polarized online review sites uh, of any of them out there as a result of some very sensible policies they've, uh, they've put in place. We've actually done some additional tests on top uh, and, uh, uh, and found that there's, um, uh, through 
testing with other survey mechanisms and variety of statistical tests that uh, that uh, um, uh, the reviews really are representative. Uh, and then the third thing is that there aren't enough. And, and in our case with the Culture 500, we, uh, you know, we limit ourselves to f 500 large organizations, typical organization in our sample had um, over 2,000 reviews. So, you know, at that number, you get pretty robust results. So, uh, yeah, so what we do with the Culture 500 is a user-friendly interactive partnership with, between MIT and Glassdoor, uh, uh, powered by the CultureX uh, analytical uh, uh, platform. And for those, uh, you know, 500 companies organized into 33 industries, uh, you can compare companies along nine of the most frequently cited by companies' values. So companies officially, you know, say they want integrity, they want collaboration, they want diversity, and we allow you to see how they're doing relative to their peers on that. Again, in the words of the employees, this isn't the top executives, this isn't the HR department, this isn't you know what they write in their annual report. These are employees who are on the ground giving their assessment of how well these things are working, and we aggregate that data up and, and rigorously analyze it to uh, uh, to provide a um, you know more evidence-based perspective on this. Have you ever um, um, paid attention to the best places to work competitions that? that happen there, there there are many versions of the best place to work competition i think forbes or fortune has one and there's a a long standing institution that does it but but it's a thing right that the best places to work thing and and the way that those awards get won generally speaking are that the organization spends enough money to get the award um um, and, and organizations that don't spend enough money to get the award don't get the award. Same thing happens in Glassdoor. So the 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 Glassdoor best CEO to work for, or whatever whatever the award is, is a highly sought thing, and people organize their companies to deliver that feedback into Glassdoor. And so, uh, so it, that that's a hypothesis that we've tested, and it's empirically not true. Okay, so first of all, that, so I know people believe that to be the case. Uh, but you, that's an empirical question, not uh, and one that we've looked at. That would be very interesting to, to understand how in the world you would test that to prove that it's not okay. true. So perfect. perfect. So first of all, what we did was – so if that were the case, right? So first of all, Glassdoor has a set of policies designed to address exactly this issue. So what you're worried about is companies uh, – incentivizing their employees to write positive reviews. That's the basic thing you're worried about. And so uh, Glassdoor has a, a team of 30 people as well as a variety of algorithms that uh, can notice, identify patterns of uh, responses that are, uh, you know, a lot of positive responses all at the same time or using the same language or that are shorter or uh, differently worded than others. Uh, reviews are flagged, uh, human beings and, uh, uh, you know, the algorithms flag things, human beings review them. So uh, there's that first. Second of all, employees are banned from writing more than one review. They have to have a, a, a company email. There are ways to validate that these are one review per year per company. Uh, uh, so there are ways to validate. Uh, three, Glassdoor has a policy called give to get, which means in order to get access to the tools, uh, you know, salary comp uh, comparisons and interview questions and so forth, uh, you, you have to write a review. And that's why they get such a representative sample, because it's not because typically people are only only have incentives to write reviews if they're very disgruntled or they're very happy. 
by this give to get policy, you provide incentives to people who have, you know, are more representative of it. It's a three. It's like a pretty good company, but it's not a great company. Um, so, uh, you know, for if companies are found through these various screening processes to be violating uh, the policies, they're um, they're banned from these competitions, right? Uh, so there are a variety. So all of the – and then, as I mentioned, empirically, what we see is the, the distribution of reviews in Glassdoor. There was a survey of – or sorry, a review of uh, 25 of the largest online review sites and measured their polarization. Glassdoor was second from the bottom in terms of polarization. So we just see empirically that the distribution looks much more normal. Uh, but then uh, – so even given all that, we took the concern you raised very, very seriously. What we did was we looked at – uh, we took our samples, large companies, 531 companies, uh, and we said, okay, let's take on a monthly basis for the uh, time period we cover, which was 63 months, uh, for every company in our sample, say it's 3M, uh, and there's 63 months, we'll look at the average number of reviews in a month for that company. And then we'll take the, the any, any review, company review, so December 2018 for 3M, that's two or more standard deviations above the average number of reviews in a month for that company, right? So that's picking up like when there's a big spike in review, number of reviews. And what we see is that's basically, it's a little more common than you would expect if it were a perfectly normal distribution. So it doesn't look skewed off the bat. Then we say, but that's not, that's not in and of itself a bad thing, right? Because, for instance, when Intel got out of uh, mobile phone chips, there was a huge spike in reviews, most of which were negative. People were really ticked off. So the spikes could, in reviews could happen for a lot of reasons, good or bad. Then we said, of that sample of companies where it's two or more standard deviations above the mean in terms of the monthly number of reviews, let's look for those months, company months, where it's also two or more standard deviations above the mean in terms of the sentiment, the, the overall rating, because that's really suspicious. Big spike in reviews, very positive. That accounted for those months, and, and again, the, some of those are going to happen by chance, right, of course, but uh, in such a large distribution, that there were uh, co company months with that, those characteristics, more than two standard deviations above the mean number of reviews in a month, more than two standard deviations above the average overall rating in a month, were less than well, well under one tenth of one percent of the total company months, and we, by the way, we dropped them just to be safe. They might have been they might have been perfectly valid. We dropped all of them from our analysis. At which point, by the way, the co those company months that spiked uh, were more than two standard deviations above the mean in terms of number of reviews were completely identical to the overall ratings and the other measures of uh, the overall sample. So uh, you know this is. I understand that people are often um, dis not pleased by what they see with Glassdoor reviews, and, and so an easy way to interpret that data is to say, well, it's just not representative, but that's an empirical question, one that we've dug into quite rigorously, and it's, it's simply not true. What a great answer. What a great answer. Thank you very much. So, so you end up with these, with these variables that um, um, how, did, how did you arrive at the list of nine variables? Is that, is that the number? Yeah, so we so at CultureX we actually measure uh, 125 different topics that are anchored in research and uh, you know what's important to managers and and some of which emerge um, inductively through unsupervised learning. Uh, but the, how we got that down to nine was in a separate study we looked at 600 companies, um, including all of the uh, Culture 500 companies, looked at their official cultural uh, um, their official statements of their culture in their annual reports and uh, online. 
uh, looked at the frequency of, so we had two PhD students independently code, uh, and then we also used our uh, machine learning NLP uh, tool to code. So, uh, so we got consistent coding of, uh, of what each of these values were, and then we just looked at the incidence of those values. So the, the most frequently cited uh, value by far in our sample was integrity. Uh, and so basically we just took um, uh, you know, nine of the top uh, 11 values. And, and the, uh, the logic behind that was in terms of how frequently companies said, this is what we aspire to, you know, diversity, integrity, collaboration, customer orientation. So we said, look, if that's what companies say their values are and what they aspire to culturally, let's hold them up to that standard and, and see how they measure against those values. So that's how we chose the big nine. That's, that, that's really interesting. And, and you're comfortable that the big nine covers culture adequately so that this is a, this is a fingerprint of culture of some kind. Yes and no. I mean, I, I think it, yes, in the sense that these are, you know, as I, as I mentioned, the most, you know, nine of the most commonly cited. So they're, it's not like we randomly chose them or, you know, some ad hoc selection process. No, in the sense that uh, cultures are much richer. I mean, we identified in the, um, uh, in the study of the uh, values that companies list, almost 70 distinct values that mo at least 1% of the companies in our sample listed. So culture is a much more, you know, there are a lot of other values beyond what we're measuring. I mean, it's just for this interactive, we couldn't, you know, uh, report on 65 different values. It would just be too cumbersome. Uh, uh, similarly, um, uh, some of the best work that's been done, uh, best academic work on, on culture has identified something on the order of 75 uh, distinct cultural va uh, values. This is the, um, uh, the work of uh, O'Reilly and Chapman that I alluded to earlier. Um, so, uh, so no, in, in that sense, no, of course not, right? I mean, this is, and this is why the, you know, the Culture 500, it's, it's, I think it's a, a, a good, it's a, a useful tool. It's an interesting tool, but it's certainly not exhaustive. And, um, you know, culture is much more multifaceted than the nine most common values companies list. But, you know, it's a practical matter. We couldn't, we couldn't report out on, you know, 80 different values for 500 companies across 33 industries. It would, uh, it just would have been too cumbersome for the, um, for the user of the tool. Got it. So, so have you been tracking response to the project? I mean, it's it's such an interesting, it's such an interesting idea. But there there was sort of the standard um, uh, PR blitz at the beginning. Is this does this have viral legs? Are people coming and looking at Culture Five Hundred and drawing conclusions? Yeah, we um, so uh, the first uh, few weeks when it went up, it it almost. Uh, uh, the traffic almost broke the server, so <laughs> there was a lot of interest. I, you know, from my point of view, it's I, I, I like the Culture 500. I think it was a, I, I think the team did a terrific job on the, the interactive. You know, it's like really nicely designed. The, the, the team just did a great, great job on that. Um, but to me, this is one part, and and re, to be honest, a relatively small part of an overall re research program where, you know, I and my colleagues and co-authors and Ph.D. students are working on, you know, over a dozen different, much more rigorous articles where we're measuring, for instance, uh, you know, as I mentioned, do companies walk the talk, the, the alignment between companies' stated values and their actual values? What are we talking about when we talk about culture? Um, working with a statistician has developed a really neat tool to see how well we can predict uh, employees' 
one to five ranking of cultural values and Glassdoor data based on these topics. Um, you know, working with Amy Edmondson and a doctoral student at Harvard on measuring psychological safety in organizations and uh, predicting that, you know, uh, measuring, uh, seeing which elements. Uh, there's a lot of empirical evidence, it turns out, that corporate culture is predictive of uh, financial results. I mean, something, uh, Alex Edmonds uh, did a terrific piece of work in the JFE on, um, that basically showed kind of top quintile companies in terms of culture as measured by the best places to work uh, that you were alluding to earlier versus the median company um, uh, over a five-year period experienced a 20% outperformance in total shareholder returns. So we've got some evidence already, and there have been a couple other studies that have, uh, there's one that just came out in the Journal of Finance that um, took a slightly different cut and came to a very similar conclusion. So we've got some evidence that in general, culture has an impact on uh, financial performance. What we don't know is which are the key elements of culture. And so we're, you know, we're looking into that, which of these 125 different uh, elements of culture are most predictive of financial performance, innovation is measured by patenting, uh, and, and so forth. So the Culture 500 is terrific. It's a great tool, and the team did a terrific job um, pulling it together, but it's, it's really a, um, a, you know, a very small part of a much larger research program. That's great. So, so we're, at, we're at the end of our time together. It's been a fantastic conversation. What's the best way to stay on top of the research that you're doing and the discoveries that you're making? It sounds like you are, you are making progress in real time, um, and this is important stuff to know about. So, so how, do, how do I stay on top of what you're doing? Uh, so two things you can do. One is uh, the Culture 500 uh, uh, project at MIT will be um, – when we come out in, I think, April of next year, we're going to have the second, uh, uh, the second version of Culture 500, uh, next year's version. There will be a cluster of articles where we'll be uh, uh, publishing some of our results at that point. So, um, so that's one thing. And then um, culturex.tech, our company, we also uh, blog and, and talk about what we're, um, what we're learning along the way. Well, I'll look, I'll look for that there. So would you take a moment and reintroduce yourself and tell people how to get a hold of you? Sure. Uh, so I'm Don Sol. I'm the co-founder of uh, CultureX. Uh, so you can reach me at uh, don at culturex.tech, or um, I also oversee the Culture 500 Project and uh, um, I'm the faculty at MIT, and you can uh, reach me at uh, dsol at mit.edu. Thanks so much, Don. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. We have been talking with Don Sull, who is the co-founder of CultureX, an MIT professor and, and a um, resume that's too long and detailed to even begin to recap. Thanks for taking the time to be with us, Don, and thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you back here next week. Bye-bye now. Terrific. Thank you, John. 